Hi, Deb. Hi, how are you? Great. Good, how are you? Okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> hanging in there? Hanging in, yeah. This is the Mayday Group Podcast, our first episode, Can We Talk? And we're here with Deb Bradley, author of an important article on anti-racism published in 2006. Hi, Deb. Can we talk? Hi, Brent. And hi, Alice. Thank you so much for uh, asking me to do this today. I'm really happy to be here and to, to chat with you guys. For listeners who might be less familiar with your work, we're wondering if you can give us kind of the premise and highlights of your piece, Music Education, Multiculturalism and Anti-Racism, Can We Talk? And uh, like Brent referenced earlier, that's, that's the article that you published in 2006 in Action, Criticism and Theory for Music Education. Yeah, I had to uh, go back and reread to see what I said um, <clears throat> back then. And, and I was actually pleasantly surprised or dismayed might be better, a better way of saying it, to see how much of it still applies in today's world. Um, sort of the, the key points of that article have to do with the way we talk about race. And um, it was essentially a critique of official multiculturalism, not because that's a bad idea, but because of the way we have employed that discourse. It erases some of the things that it's actually intended to bring to the fore and make more obvious and work against. One of those things, of course, is racially coded language. So even talking about multiculturalism in the back of our mind is this presence of someone who doesn't look like us or who doesn't do things the way we might do personally. And that, that sort of emerged out of, the, out of colonization because it was necessary for the conquerors and the colonizers to have to create something that was a little less than human to be able to justify their own actions and to be able to live with themselves, to go in and kill people or take their, their land, their belongings, their possession, you know, and uh, try to convert them to a different way of life. It, it, you know, you have to wrestle with your own conscience. And, and so this othering was, I think, part of that, that uh, system. So, you know, when it, the whole concept of, of this article was can, of Can We Talk actually came from my reading of Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination, where she talks about the Africanist presence in American literature and how so much of the, the action in the plots had something to do with a place that was far away with the plantation or the land holding in Africa, but the actual setting might be in Britain or in, in the US. And uh, so the fact that, that these other people who weren't directly involved in the plot itself actually were very key to the plot and the way it unfolded. And I read that book and it was like, oh my gosh, this is such, now I get it, choral music, all this music of other cultures that we're doing, that's exactly what we're creating. 
is this other presence within our own world. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if that's all we're doing is create this, creating a presence of the other without attempting to engage or understand, then I saw that as problematic. One of the discourses that has replaced direct language of race are words like urban, even culture. We often substitute culture because we're uncomfortable about naming race. And so it's that sort of language that has sort of boxed us in a little bit because now that is the acceptable discourse. And talking directly about race has never been. And although we have these moments, in the 1960s it crept out, and then it got neatly pushed back again. And I think we're in one of those moments right now. So hopefully we can keep the doors open and the language honest. That's essentially what the article was about. Yeah, uh, hey, what a world can I view with you? Anti-racism and decolonize are terms we have heard used more frequently since the movement for Black Lives has gained more momentum this past year. How did you get into writing about anti-racism and decolonization? You mentioned Toni Morrison's book. Were there other kind of seminal texts or experiences um, that were powerful for you that, that led you to engage with this work? Yeah, um, I, you know, this is not a, a, a succinct answer. There was not a single aha moment for me. I grew up in the Jim Crow South during the very early days of the civil rights movement. Uh, so I witnessed all, I witnessed the protests, I witnessed water cannons mowing down people. I had parents who were very, very um, outspoken in their beliefs that, that this system of apartheid that was enacted in the US needed to, to fall. And they were always very vocal about that. So I had that um, background in my life. Um, when I, in my last year of high school in the 60s, the, my all-white school of 2,000 students, 2,000 middle-class students, uh, and some, some highly affluent students as well, we were integrated and integration consisted of one young black man and one young black woman going into this population. And, you know, that I can't even imagine now how difficult that had to have been for them. But I remember sitting in classes with both of them thinking, you've got some real courage to just be willing to be here. And so that, that had a big impression. I moved to Canada in, in my late 20s, and this was in the early days of multiculturalism having been made an official uh, national policy. And so at first I thought, having moved from the South, you know, and coming to Canada, and I thought, wow, isn't this great? This is so wonderful. And in many ways, it was a huge improvement, I think and remains a huge improvement. But over time, I began to think, realize, you know, it doesn't, it's not preventing a lot of the ugliness 
that I thought it should. I'll put it that way. Uh, and there was a lot of criticism of it as well. So finally, later in life, I decided to change careers and I went back to university and I was very fortunate to study with, with people like um, Doreen Rao and Lori Dolliff who were very, very interested in um, bringing music from other cultures into the choral world. So that was a big influence. I had the good guidance of uh, folks like Wayne Bowman and Liz Gould and started, you know, thinking about a lot of these things that had been percolating a little differently. And then I went out to teach for five years and I had some fuzzy ideas about things I thought I ought to be doing as a teacher with respect to multicultural education. Tried to put those into play and I, you know, it was pretty experimental and adaptive and, you know, but I was learning along the way and finally I hit that point where I got to do a PhD. So I started to look at the um, catalog for OISE, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, and looking through their programs and I got to one page and my heart just went thump, 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 and my gut said, this is it. And that was the in the sociology and equity studies department and the program was called anti-racism education and it just hit me like the ton of bricks and i said this is what i have to do that first introductory course of principles of anti-racism was a big big learning moment for me it was a whole year course and I think for the 26 weeks, I probably came home and cried my eyes out for two hours every single time. Um, I learned so much, but I also had to confront my whiteness. And that it seriously was the first time I had ever heard that term, whiteness, was in that course. And I'd sit there week after week and I'd go, why do these people dislike me so much? I'm, I'm on your side. I'm one of the good people, right? I'm here to learn and yet the whole point for me was to sit and listen and try to come to understand what it was that they went through day in and day out of their lives and then I had to start putting that to music education that was my main goal right was to bring this back into music education it was out of that course that I wrote a paper based on playing in the dark uh, and I submitted it to the uh, Philosophy of Music Education Conference. It was accepted. It was really well received. And that's really what started making me think there's something here that people want to hear. They, they, I think they need to hear it. And I think there's an opportunity here for us to begin to change our practice in a way to actually achieve the goals that music education claims it supports. That's the short version. <laughs> yeah, wow. Thank you for sharing all of those experiences. And I'm so thankful that Deb Bradley exists in music education because she certainly mentored and helped me through a lot of my whiteness <laughs> and stumbling in well, 2015 <laughs> when I when I was oh, trying to write an article. And, and yeah, we, we all think, oh, yeah, I have to say this. And, and you know, I, 
I'm on the right side of things. I'm one of the good white people, right? And without ever looking at how, how those words or actions are going to be read by other people who've seen it a million times and seen people fall by the wayside because they couldn't hack it. Mm-hmm. Yet this is their daily life. That's right. That's right. And I've, I've had many a conversation uh, with students modeling very much the approach you took with me, helping me kind of uncover, learn more. You know, before you move down this rabbit hole, why don't you read this work? <laughs> you know, or why don't you think about how, you know, this is a longer arc. You know, you need to know your history as well, that this isn't the first mm-hmm. moment of these types of actions, but that they are a reiteration uh, of, of historical trauma and, and such. And I've gained great, great amount of insight and have much more to do too. Again, that that is a, a long arc and process of unlearning. Um, both learning and unlearning, you know, that that kind right. of <laughs> happens simultaneously. So going back to the article that you published in, in 2006, um, that was over 14 years ago. On page 23, you charged music educators to, quote, engage in conversations that acknowledge the ways in which music and our discourses about music are racially coded. Um, Our question for you is, do you feel like that has happened over the last 14 years? And if so, in what ways? Well, it, yeah, I do think there is more awareness. I, I, I definitely think that. Is it as widespread as I would like to see? No, of course not. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. But I do think people, many, many people, not everyone, many people are much more aware of their language, the language they choose to use. They're becoming more astute about the language they see and read in policies and in curricula. Um, but I'm, I'm, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And I think we could easily, easily retrench. So it's really important that we keep pushing this forward because clearly we haven't done enough work or we would see better outcomes in society. We'd, we would see less violence enacted on people of color by uh, people in authority. And, um, you know, we wouldn't have the, the difficulties with uh, indigenous people and, and the horrible ways that they are treated uh, in North America. Um, so, I mean, we, we have to be on the lookout for things in policy and, um, and, and government actions that may themselves rely on coded language or begin creating new coded languages which is the other tricky thing about racial discourse is, you know, when one thing becomes accepted, then there's another code that goes into play. Um, but I do think we're seeing, seeing change. Black Lives Matter has certainly made it um, much more acceptable and not just acceptable, but has actually engaged people who might not otherwise talk about these issues in discussions. Some of those are very fraught and very difficult, but they need to happen. 
So, you know, I look at that as, as some positive, positive movement. You know, recently many institutions have released solidarity statements and created agendas for dismantling racism. Uh, as you know, the Mayday group just released one last month. And, uh, your paper calls to identify otherwise coded or tacit racialized thinking in order to expose systemic racism. For example, you show how multiculturalism is a coded language and show how, quote, our educational discourses have developed reliance upon codes to imply what we do not wish to state outright, end quote. So, you know, you mentioned this a little bit in the last question, but what types of coded language do you identify in the statements that, um, of solidarity that we are seeing today? And what pulls us away from directly talking about race in music education um, specifically? Yeah. Thank you for uh, making me think a little bit on this um, because in this great rush to proclaim our solidarity with, with uh, other folks and to say we're there with you, uh, one of the, the great pitfalls is that that's all it is our words right so i i went and i've been thinking about this and um looked at some typical solidarity statements and began to notice a lot of language that would go something like uh, to the black identifying members of our community we grieve with you we believe you we support you that's all well and good Not criticizing that as always Oh, there's, there's something to pick your ears up a little. As always, your voice is important to us and we welcome your opinions. Okay, it's good to welcome opinion, but you can welcome opinion and never do a doggone thing about it, right? You can listen. But if you act the way you feel is best without taking those opinions into account, those were empty words. Um, another, another one of these words that I think we need to keep our eyes on, I'm not saying outright they're bad. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying if we let them stand without action to back them up, it's, it's just empty promises. Um, so we're going to reflect on our organization's history of oppression or exclusion. And yes, reflection is absolutely necessary. We have to do that to be able to understand where we can begin to make change. But again, reflecting as a goal is a little bit meaningless, right? Same thing with reviewing the structure. We reflect, we review, where's the action coming, right? So we, we need to, to keep backing these things up with, okay, we have to do these. These are sequential steps that we need to take to make sure that <clears throat> we have something concrete to act upon. But just those actions themselves don't lead to that. And unfortunately, there are a great many statements that stop there. There's another, there's a, there are some acronyms floating around that, that and even Mayday Group, we, we used one of them in our statement. And 
the more I think about it, the more it troubles me a little bit. And that's the two that are BBIP, Black, Brown, Indigenous Peoples. I think that acronym leaves out a lot of people. So that one makes me a little uncomfortable. And then there's also BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And although that one appears to be more inclusive, my real problem, and this could just be me, is that we're reducing human beings to an acronym, to a short form. And in doing so, we avoid having to name a racial designation that people in, dominant, in the power of a dominant position labeled. And so it's to me just a, really another way of holding on to power, to saying we have the right to name you however we choose, we as white people. Those are some things I think we need to keep our eyes on. When you're looking at all of these words in, in these statements, the institutional statements um, that I've seen and, and encountered um, also include words like decolonize and anti-racism. Um, and when words like these are prolifically used, does it diminish their meaning and power? And uh, dare we say, become what Pollock calls uh, deraced words? You know, I'm, I'm afraid that that could very well happen. We're in the moment now where people who tend to use that language, I think, are sincere and, and understand why they're using it. But like so many other things, it's going to be adapted and appropriated by people who want to undermine their use, who want to neutralize their use. And, you know, some people, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's going to happen on the sooner side if it hasn't already, that some people will just start using those terms to show how woke they are. And, um, you know, they, when that's the case, they, they don't, they haven't necessarily had to go through the self-reflection and the self-review and interrogation to come to, to understand what those terms really mean and what it means to invoke those terms. So I, I you know, we have music education is not particularly good at avoiding those pitfalls. Uh, Wayne Bowman also wrote about that in 2006 in, uh, for another article um, that I had contributed to ACT on. It was a special issue on social justice, that sort of umbrella term. And he actually cautioned and reminded people that Music Ed has a long history of, you know, jumping onto the flavor du jour or the flavor of the month with terminology and not actually getting down to do the work that will make the substantial change in the discipline that those terms require us to make. So I worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm, I've always been curious about this, uh, you know, with, specifically with 
decolonize or decolonizing or decolonization, the word is a pretty, it, it's a loaded, mm-hmm. very loaded word, power laden word. Um, and I think we can jump to conclusions immediately to assume what we think it means to decolonize a space. Um, for me, I see it as a, as, a, as a process, not an end point, but I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on what it means for an institution or a classroom to decolonize. <clears throat> yeah, and I'm just before I answer that question, um, because I will answer it, but, you know, I think we need to keep in mind that in, uh, for certain groups of people, the word decolonize, to use it to talk about decolonizing an institution or a classroom is itself an appropriation of meaning that ties back into that power dynamic. Uh, because in its original context, decolonization was all about the reappropriation of lands and resources to the people from whom they had been stolen by the conquerors. So keeping that in mind, I, I don't think we can put that particular toothpaste back in the tube, though it's too widely used, um, <clears throat> to not talk about decolonizing our, our spaces. Having said that, you know, we, we um, need to think about what it is we think we're doing when we're decolonizing. And I think back to the 2006 article, uh, Can We Talk? And I had mentioned in, in that article that oftentimes we think we're doing good by undertaking what jo- Jocelyn Guibault termed a racial project where we put the racial designation as the front and center piece for the action. And Rodano and Bowman in Music and the Racial Imagination, this wonderful volume of essays that they published in 2000, they also talked about this, how, how music oftentimes is identified and and analyzed based on racial categories rather than the music or the culture from which it came. And so I think when we start talking about decolonizing, we're in great danger of falling into that same trap where we put race as the most important thing in decolonizing but to me decolonizing is about power and it's about redistributing power it's about making everyone have the same opportunities the same abilities to be active and engage in the world on equal footing so i i'm you know really really always concerned about who's who's making these decisions who's naming something as something we need to attend what who benefits from that naming is it being you know is the person doing the naming benefiting do they do it believing the people they're naming will be benefited if so that's sort of a savior mentality that's coming into play or is it something that is genuinely going to help everyone achieve 
the same the same uh, status. So those those things trouble me, and I had had to say it <laughs> because I think we're starting to see some of that happen already. Um, <clears throat> but within a classroom. Especially, I think classrooms might be a little easier to deal with than institutions themselves. Um, you know, teachers, we just need to get out of our own way, right? Hand some of that teacher authority over to the students in the classroom. Let them begin to make decisions about what they want to study, how they want to study it, what is it they want to learn. I mean, Kids can do remarkable things, we all know that, if we let them, right? But if we say, oh no, at this point in the semester, we need to be learning, do, re, mi, ti, ti, tika, tika, right? And, you know, they're gone, they could care less, because that has nothing to do with the music they love, and, we we can't make assumptions about what music they love we need to get that from them we need to give them the space to make those decisions and then once we've got some repertoire that we're going to study you know that we've collectively pulled from the group then we start focusing also on why is this music important what did it mean to you what might it mean to other people and that way we start helping through music we we get students to think about other people as human beings gee they like this i like this or they like that and i don't care about it very much but I, what they're worried about when they sing this is a lot of what i worry about when i go home at night and so we start building that that common sense of humanity through the musics we engage because emotions are shareable. People react to other people in distress or seeing their joy. We need to take these moments of celebration or sorrow or difficulty. And we've got the best tool in the whole world, I think, for helping people work through those emotions, and that's music. There's a song for everything, right? Or if you're in an instrumental class, there is music for everything. So you can always find some way to help students keep in touch with their humanity. And I think that's, that's what it's about. And then finally, for teachers who, who may say, oh, this sounds like something I wanna do, but I just don't know how to do it. I don't know where to go to find resources. Look around. You know, and I mean, there's a great group going on Facebook right now, decolonizing the music room. And, you know, whether or not you like the title of the group, there are some really uh, fruitful conversations going on on that Facebook group. And teachers are able to ask about the history, the context of a piece of music, whether or not it's appropriate for use with, with a certain grade level. I mean, I, I personally don't subscribe to that level of, is it appropriate for this group? Because it depends on the group and what their experiences have been. But um, there, there's some really 
compassionate and well thought out discussion going on on that group. And so I would encourage people to, to look there if they're uncertain about how to proceed in their own classroom. At the institutional level, uh, you know, we need to keep going back to the foundational documents, I think. I, I really think we're at a position where a lot of things have to be rethought from the ground up because um, especially universities in North America, uh, historically white universities in North America, the land-grant institutions and the private institutions, they were born with a particular mission in mind that was exclusionary. And that is written into their constitutions, their, you know, everything about them has come out of that original premise that only some people can attend here. Only some people deserve to attain a higher education. And that was always part of that thinking. So I think it really, we, you know, we, if you're in a position where you can get to those documents to be on a committee, um, part of a, a task force where, you know, this kind of work is uh, where you're in a position where you're able to engage this kind of work directly, start looking at where the racial codes are in those documents, where the, the colonizing effects exist in those documents, because we really need to rethink what the purpose of the institutions is and how it is going to engage in the world, how it's going to deliver what is essentially a very good mission to educate. You know, if we, if we give that the mission to educate is a positive one, then we have to find ways to make sure that it doesn't get tripped up with the language that's used and the thinking that's employed in how that institution operates. I appreciated you talking about helping teach students to um, recognize each other's humanity in the world. And I can't help but think students of all ages, right, pre-K up through the collegiate level, that that's something daily, at least for me in my elementary school, that students are inspiring me to remember and think about the humanity of others. So I think it's pretty, pretty neat that in the field of music education, we can also learn from, as always, learn from our students, but especially now when I feel like they're really engaged in their world and all these issues happening. So I'm inspired by that and would like to continue that as well. After you've kind of mentioned all these different things going on, um, what are what are some things that you're working on right now? Uh, <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, basically, my main project right now is actually an extension of the original anti-racism work that I did, and and I'm not. By, by no means am I turning my back on anti-racism because it really is part and parcel of what I'm doing now, but I've um, most recently begun um, researching the effects of trauma on individuals, on societies, and on cultures. And, um, you know, not, not just North America, but globally, 
I actually started doing this research before the arrival of COVID-19. So now that that is here and upon us, I'm really seeing the effects of trauma on us as individuals and as societies um, across cultures. But really, even before, when I first started getting into it, I was becoming aware of the great depths of hurt and trauma that existed among entire populations of people as the result of things that took place in the past. And so when we, we see ways of grappling with it now, like the removal of monuments, which should have happened, should, they should have probably never been erected, but they were it is time to take them down and enable the folks who were harmed and are continually harmed by their memory. I mean, that's like putting someone in a perpetual state of PTSD. If they have to walk past a monument every day that honors someone who owned slaves or who fought to maintain slavery as a way of life, that, you know, that is just uh, unconscionable to me and I, th I think we have to make those those kinds of actions so within trauma it's you know in trauma studies it's again it's about trying to get to the humanity in all of us everyone suffers everyone experiences a trauma or multiple traumas across the time of their life uh, a lot of it is just life death is part of life and we all experience that and lose loved ones that's a trauma but there are other traumas that go on all the time and we have to find ways to deal with that as educators and again i think as a music educator i'm i'm in such a wonderful position because we can use music it's a great outlet it's a great tool for processing emotions and it's a way to help us see the humanity in each other i i hate to even use an example of someone else's trauma because I, I, it's difficult to do without sounding like i'm about to re-traumatize them but if you look at something like the holocaust which does get talked of and there are curricula written about um, if we frame that as something that happened in the past and never again we're never going to let it happen again well it's happened again multiple times it's ongoing now in today's world you know so we have to stop this that's history and we have to start saying this is life and we have to find ways to deal with it, to, to help people live through it. Yes, prevention obviously is a goal, but we're human beings and we're, I think for a long time in our future, gonna continue to do bad things to each other that result in trauma. Sad to say, but I'm not, I don't think we're enlightened enough by any means to, <laughs> to stop doing those things to each other. So until we reach that ideal point sometime in a very distant future, we have to find ways to deal with it in the present. Because trauma in the past keeps coming back into the present and affects how we live our daily lives.
and it affects how we deal with others, how we engage with others. So that's where I am today. That's where you are today. Um, we so appreciate that. So for the listeners out there interested in learning more about anti-racism, what are some ways to engage? Well, um, there are lots of, lots of things going on in today's world. Obviously, there is a lot of written material. There has been a lot of written material for over a hundred years, well over a hundred years. Um, if you want to, you know, if you're on the early on the path of anti-racism, start with reading W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk. And if you're a musician, get the version that has the little musical excerpts at the beginning of each chapter from the sorrow songs, because there's a whole lot written into those few bars of music that never gets explained in the text. But if you, if you can read that notation and you understand that bit of song, you, you get a different layer of, of meaning from reading his words. Yeah, so we have to read and we have to read the writings of people of color because we cannot, if all you read is, is what Deb Bradley has written, you're just going to get a perspective from a white woman who tries hard. That's all you're going to get. So we need to read Ibrahim X. Kendi. We need to read Michelle Alexander. We need to read uh, James Baldwin. And we need to read across history, starting with Du Bois and earlier Frederick Douglass, right? And read across history so that you can see how things have changed and how they haven't, sadly how they haven't to get into today's world. So there's reading. There's a lot going on. I mean, much as I might personally complain about the internet and all the things that make me crazy about it, there's a lot going on. There are webinars, uh, lots of them right now with some really well-qualified people that you can um, take part actively and ask your questions and uh, hear and engage with others and hear and see how they engage with certain uh, questions and problems. Uh, podcasts like this one and many others that are out there um, can, can also help to uh, enlighten us. And um, then finally, we need to you know, begin to think about how we are gonna engage in the world and start to reframe our own viewpoint so that it is less about how does this affect me and more about how do I affect other people? How is my action in the world going to affect someone else and is it going to be a positive thing? And I think that's what we have to strive for. So I'd say listen more, talk less, think harder and think wisely and with compassion and act wisely and with compassion. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. I know it's been really meaningful for us to reconnect with you, but also um, to, to keep this conversation going very important right now and, and kind of always um, looking forward to continuing. Well, thank you so much. I, I really uh, enjoy chatting with, with both of you today. And uh, you know, let's, let's keep on doing this because gosh knows we got to 
got a lot of work to do. <laughs> The Mayday Group functions as an international think tank of music educators that aims to identify, critique, and change taken-for-granted patterns of professional activity in music education. Learn more about this organization at maydaygroup.org. The Mayday Group podcast is hosted and edited by Alice Bradway and Brent Talbot. Our theme music is written by Simon Dufour and performed with members of the group Dasset. Check them out on Spotify and iTunes. Join us for our next episode where we discuss resistance, decolonial work, and insurgent pedagogy with Hakim Williams. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next time. <laughs>